Hi, I'm Ann Levitsky with Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities. Welcome to the first installment of our new Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast. This panel discussion series celebrates new books by Columbia faculty members, where the authors are joined by colleagues both within and without the university to discuss their newly published works. Today's podcast focuses on Franz Boas Professor of Anthropology Elizabeth Pavanelli's new book, Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism, and the new 30th anniversary edition of fellow Joseph L. Butenwieser Professor of Anthropology Lila Abulugod's book, Veiled Sentiments, Honor and Poetry in a Bedouin Society. I'll be speaking with Assistant Professor of Anthropology Vanessa Agard-Jones about both books in just a moment, but first I'd like to bring you the comments Elizabeth Pavanelli and Lila Abulugod made at the panel about their books and the trajectory of their work as a whole. First, I'll bring you Lila Abulugod's reading of her book at the panel. She begins by speaking about her experience while writing the book and its initial publication and the invitation to publish a new edition. Um, so, uh, it's strange, I just wanted to say a few things before reading a passage, which is what they suggested. Um, it's strange to have a book that you wrote, uh, when you were in your early 30s, some of you haven't even got there, but when you were in your early 30s, uh, to have it reissued. Um, I was a really different person, uh, when I wrote this book, and anthropology was actually a very different beast when I published it, which is 1986, which is the same year as writing uh, culture, is that what it was called? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was a kind of watershed in anthropology too, and we didn't have the benefit of it all yet. Um, So, uh, but I was thinking, I'm the kind of person, uh, the kind of anthropologist, and the kind of feminist scholar that I am, as Tricia sort of described, now because of the life that I shared with, families in this community in the Western Desert in Egypt that many years ago uh, when I was young. Uh, late 70s, early 1980s is when I did the bulk of the field work, um, and even this book was, the next book was the mid-80s. Uh, but everything that we shared, um, everything that happened in our lives, uh, in our relationships and in the world of which we're all a part. I mean, this is what made me who I am now and a very different person than I was when I first went to live with them. So when I was invited to reissue the book for its 30th anniversary, I was quite ambivalent. Um, but, um, but the book is still widely taught. But I thought, what can I add? So I said I'd write an afterword sort of reflecting on what it meant now to think about uh, what I did then. Um, And as it happened, I had recently taught a required course in our department called Ethnographic Imagination, which I thought would be really easy for me because I'm the or anthropologist next to you, uh, but it was incredibly um, difficult for me, and it triggered these very serious uh, soul-searching um, about what we call fieldwork and about the very project of ethnography itself. And I still remember sitting with Beth and Claudio and a few people in the lounge in the anthropology department talking about fieldwork and what it is and how weird it is and how intense it is and how much it is part of us and how it's impossible to explain it to anyone who doesn't do field work. Uh, but um, uh, so um, I decided to write a little bit about 
what this has meant to me uh, and what my relationships to this community have meant to me and what's happened to anthropology in the meantime as the afterward. So sort of thinking about a project really that I pursued for you know 35 years of my life or more. Um, so I ended up calling uh, the afterward the values of ethnography and I actually wanted it the values you know, parentheses around the S, so the value of anthropology, but the values, the ethics of it. Uh, but I was persuaded by someone that you shouldn't, that was too pretentious to have parentheses around an S. So it just became this very plain title. Um, so uh, I'm really actually looking forward to hearing what my wonderful colleagues here uh, have to say, some of my favorite colleagues in the world, what they have to say about our books. But it was suggested that we read a little bit from uh, our work, just to give you a taste of it. And it was very hard to pick anything, because I try to cover so many different topics. But I'll try this with the last section um, that's called Ethnographic Reserve, with a nod to Audra Simpson. Uh, it doesn't say with a nod to Audra Simpson, but it is with a nod. Um, so it says, when I was invited to prepare a 30th anniversary edition of Veiled Sentiments, I imagined I would use this occasion to let readers know about the transformations that had occurred in this community, uh, community. But breaches of the borders between our formerly separate worlds confused me. The situation confronting the Oled Ali since the uprisings in Egypt and across the Arab world in 2011 on the one hand, and the exchanges we had when I came to visit them to assess these transformations uh, in 2015, and I had been visiting regularly, but uh, on the other forced me to reconsider the ethnographic impulse that had sustained my work over the years. And then I end that section and pretty much the book. Uh, and there's lots of other stuff in here which will probably be picked up there, but this is what I'm going to say. The ethnographic reserve I feel now is protective. Although veiled sentiments opened up worlds for many and was for me a labor of love, the lofty goals of ethnographic work no longer seem so compelling. To honor our Aisha, which is a word in Arabic that means living together, I do not want any longer to mediate my relationships with these families through anthropology. I hope they'll value the historical record I've created of who they were and how they lived. I hope they will find the analysis true to life, maybe even illuminating. And I hope someday they will ask me for something, maybe to work with them on something that matters to them. But in these uncertain times, it's not clear to me what good would come from more revelations, however insightful, meant for audiences that do not really include them. I turn over in my mind the touching thing that one of the Hajj's sons, uh, the Hajj was my father there, uh, son said to me when I was getting ready to leave after my first visit following his father's death. He was a handsome young man with green eyes like his father's and I had a soft spot for him. I always remembered him as the quiet boy who had lived with us for a year without his own mother present. Uh, she had argued with the Hajj and had gone back to live with her in her brother's household, and it took a while for them to reconcile. The young man said to me, just because the Hajj is gone, don't think this isn't still your home. And I appreciated that. And the question I have now is how best to reciprocate. Next, we'll hear Elizabeth Pavanelli speaking about how she came to be part of a community in the Northern Territories of Australia. Um, 
Well, I was going to just read something kind of randomly. Um, but since Leila began with a framing, I thought maybe it would be helpful mm-hmm. to do similarly. Um, and because it's interesting how perhaps beginnings be coming into disciplinarity um, does and doesn't actually change what gets produced on page. Or it's a question. Um, so uh, I first went where I have now, where I now live, so other than in New York, so kind of by bipolar living, I suppose, um, uh, as a philosopher, um, and a great books philosopher, like a St. John's kid. Uh, uh, on a fellowship, so framed by power and the circuits that move certain people and embed others to forms of non-mobility or different forms of mobility. But as a particular kind of philosopher, as you know, someone saturated in great books, um, and the structures of international movement and settlement. Um, located me um, in a small community uh, in just across the harbor from Darwin, which is in the north of Australia. Um, and in a set of discourses that were resonant with uh, my white family, you know, the ones that made me, mm-hmm. um, with, whose own self-accounting uh, ha- was that was non-national village empire. Uh, so, you know, in a very simple way, um, my my father's side grandparents come from a little village in the Alps, and they was part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And so, their social imaginary were five families, village, and empire. And nationalism was a kind of small, degraded form. So, now, it wasn't indigenous, right? It was certainly nationalized in the great Italian consolidation or expansion, however you want to think about it, after World War I. Um, but it was resonant with an imaginary that thinks about territoriality in units that are both swallowed by nationalism but are not complicit with it, not agreeing to it, which is North Australia. It was also, I grew up in Louisiana woods, so I like, you know, so it was, there was a lot of resonance, and it was like, very cool, very cool, very enjoyable, <laughs> very thoughtful, really, you know, and at the end of this year I had a visa for, um, the older men and women of, uh, of, of Bellion, uh who were, were engaged in a very controversial land claim. So there's a piece of legislation under which they have to claim land. Um, asked if I would come back to be their lawyer because by law, indigenous men, uh, groups in Australia can't um, 
be unmediated in relation to the state. And said they have to be mediated by a lawyer and an anthropologist. So I said I did not want to be a lawyer. I had spent my entire life not being a lawyer. And they said, what about anthropologists? <laughs> and I said, I don't know what that is. And they said, you're not totally stupid. I bet, we, I bet you guys, you can figure this out. <laughs> so my relation to anthropology um, was initially informed by the state's relation to the discipline and the discipline's disciplining of um, a set of local, regional, imminent sociologists. Um, and my research, my ethnographic project, was on the one, my commission was to explain them to the state in such a way that they could win because they didn't fit the law. Or such that we, they could lose more advantageously than they would lose other ones. But my, my research project was never to explain them to others, but rather to understand how power in its ethical form, in its epistemological forms, in its economic forms, disclose itself when standing with them. Right, so my ethnographic project was late liberal power. And thus the content of what we've done together over the last 32 years um, has continued to be that. What I'm trying to do with them is understand what power is as it addresses them and us differentially. Um, so this is maybe the, I don't know, it might be the last book in a five-book series on that. Um, and we've started doing films now together, mm -hmm. which is, again, interesting. So that's all I have to say. <laughs> I'm here with Vanessa Agard-Jones, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University. Today, we're going to discuss two recent publications by Columbia Anthropology faculty, Elizabeth Pavanelli and Lila Abulagod. And Vanessa, thanks for being here with me this morning. Glad to be here. Your remarks from the panel eloquently discuss some of the main themes of these two books. I would like to ask you to say a bit more about these themes and how they pertain to each author's work specifically. Both Elizabeth Pavanelli and Lila Abu-Lagode rethink or return to methodologies and ways of thinking, constituting different ways of approaching projects that transcend traditional or sedimented anthropological practices. How do the ethical concerns or practices you spoke about at the panel appear in Pavanelli's work? Or how does her project contribute to an understanding of or practice of ethics in the discipline? Wow, great question, and, and thank you for the kind framing of my remarks during the panel. Um, I think what I did say at the panel, and I think it's quite true about both of these projects, um, is that the one of the ethical concerns that they lay on the table for us 
both as a discipline for anthropologists, but for people who work on theories of our social world more broadly, um, is what Beth has called, Beth Covinelli has called a practice of effort. Um, so what kinds of efforts of engagement, um, what kinds of um, ethics of um, being there, quite frankly, um, we need to think about as we try to um, make social theory that is accountable to and reflective of the world in which we live. And so I think that one of the great um, joys of being able to celebrate these two very different projects at the same time was to see what it looks like to be in conversation with a group of people uh, for two decades, three decades, um, uh, four decades even, I guess in the case of Lila's book, right, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Veiled Sentiments, but she has been in conversation with the people um, in this ethnography for uh, nearly 40 years. Um, and what kinds of efforts, what kinds of practice it takes to continue to work alongside people um, who live in kind of radically incommensurate worlds is a, a term that Beth has used in her own work um, and other essays. Um, so part of the ethical concern that both Povinelli and Abeluka put on our tables um, is about what it means to show up um, with and for others um, and what that does to the kinds of social theory that we produce. So um, I think anthropologists have a particular kind of commitment um, uh, to being there um, over and over again, um, and they both show us kind of what it could look like um, to do that over the course of one's, not just career, but life, um, to really think about this as a life-building project and not just about something focused toward the academy. Um, so one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk more about um, that I've been thinking about are the ways that um, Povinelli, for example, that Povinelli continues to work with people in the Northern Territory of Australia uh, through a collaborative film GPS, GIS, what she calls a transmedia project. Um, and this is a project that grows out of um, long-standing investments in this community um, where she began as you know, someone who worked in this community was asked to become an anthropologist for this community, um, spent many, many years working and writing alongside of them um, as they pursued a land claim and is now kind of thinking with them through different media. Um, so I think this is about a kind of an ethic of flexibility, uh, methodological flexibility, right? We work with people at different moments in different ways, um, but also about an, eth an ethic of endurance, right? We also stay the course, um, uh, even if we are not in daily contact with the folks with whom we work, um, we maintain a kind of concern for their lives and their futures. I, I would like to also um, come back to the the mention of the digital that you brought up in, in mm -hmm. connection with Beth's work, but I wonder if first you could talk a little bit more about the methodologies of um, Beth and Lila, because um, you, sure. you speak a little bit about the movement out of or past cramped spaces of academic thought, and I think you were alluding to that in what you just spoke about, but I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you perceive these movements in each author's works. Sure. Um, I think that both Beth and Lila show us in compelling ways how anthropology works as a troubler of dominant knowledge regimes. Um, I think both of these projects help us say 
see to everyone else working in social theory, you're so involved in interpreting the world with Foucault or with Deleuze or with Latour or with whoever else, right? Um, and they ask us, you know, what might we see from here, you know, wherever they're, or here-ish, as Beth might say. Um, what do we see from the locations of people living far from the actual or conceptual centers of Western power? Um, what kinds of, uh, Beth calls them, analytics of existence um, might they place on our collective tables? Um, and I think uh, this is both an anthropological conceit, right? This is part of... Um, why the work um, of people in this discipline looks the way it, uh, of many in this discipline, not all, um, looks the way it does. Um, but I mean, even Lila's project, right, Veiled Sentiments came out 30 years ago, but remains a classic in the discipline um, because of part, part of what she's doing is she's saying, you know, we've had this one way of looking at and thinking about um, discourse um, and the political um, there is a dominant mode of understanding what politics are and how people kind of articulate political aspirations and political theories. Um, what if we looked from a different place, right? And she looks to uh, Kinawa, these, this poetry of personal life, um, to unsettle ideas about um, what was understood at the time to be the veracity of political discourse, right? So to say, you know, if we look at these poetic forms, they're dismissed as women's forms or dismissed as um, kind of uh, unimportant kind of snatches of mundane life, um, what actually, what could they actually teach us um, about something much bigger? Um, so it's a, it's a kind of methodological shift to the small, um, to the gestural, to the... Um, to the um, uh, to the to the to the kind of cultural well I won't call them cultural because Beth uh, Beth Lila also asks us to write against culture which is important um, <laughs> um, but a kind of shifting our attention and our analytic um, kind of force to the, the 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 ways of being in the world that don't um, sit at the center of our um, political theories and social theories um, so I think. Um, that is one way past the cramped space of academic thought. And, well, maybe not past it, right? So part of what uh, Beth is interested in is the fact that people are working from the cramped space of late liberalism, that there may not be a way past or out of that cramped space, but what might we learn um, by thinking with and working alongside and um, kind of looking at the analytics of existence of people who live in this, the some of the most cramped of cramped spaces of late liberalism. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think one of the zingers in geontologies is, you know, that highlights that we have been trapped perhaps in Western social theory and endless debates about the, bi the biopolitical and the necropolitical, endless debates about various forms of life. Um, and she says, you know, if we look from the space of the Northern Territory in Australia, it makes it really clear that Western ontologies are covert bi-ontologies. So, so wrapped up in this question of um, questions of life and death that we forget or that we're unable to see the ways that other groups of people, other analytics of existence might help us pay attention to non-life um, in a way that's really important for where we are in our planet at this moment, right? As we kind of hurdle um, toward various forms of 
you know, disintegration and dissolution um, and devastation, given where we are um, in our planetary history. Um, and so she kind of, you know, helps us reframe this debate um, kind of uh, from a cramped space, right, from the cramped space of late liberalism, um, uh, kind of... Uh, and, and have to see what that kind of space might offer um, to our social theory. You mentioned Beth's filmmaking project earlier. Could you talk about how you think she and Lila, because as we saw at the panel, both projects interact with the digital, though in very different ways, deals with the digital age, and how you think her response to or engagement with the digital can shape the way forward for future uses of digital technologies? Or, I suppose, uh, what questions or concerns do Beth and Lila raise to help future projects with their digital interactions? Sure. Um, that's a great question as well. Um, you know, what I, it, we also have to really take seriously that these are projects um, conceived and written at very different moments. Um, so um, one of the lovely things about the panel um, is that we got to hear more from Lila about um, the real transformation over the course of the life of this um, this set of questions for her from um, more than 30 years ago um, to the present as she's trying to think about um, what the digital has wrought um, in her in, in her relationship to the Alar Ali um, uh, communities with whom she was um, working for Veiled Sentiments. And geontology is kind of written smack in the middle of, right in the midst of all of the digital transformations that are afoot, right? Um, and so this isn't, you know, this isn't the book that Beth would have written 30 years ago, um, revisited. Um, and so part of what we learn from Lila is about the really um, fraught, ways that um, digital, you know, not just digital, but technological transformation um, shifts our relationships to others um, in the so-called field in the, you know, where we do our research. Um, so one of the things that Lila um, has been thinking about and kind of working on are the tapes that she has from her first fieldwork forays. Um, with this community, um, and what is to become of them. Uh, she has, you know, kind of actual physical material tapes um, that she has digitized and has been considering, you know, um, what are the ethics of sharing these digital projects or these digital products? Um, how might they be shared in a way that both reflects the conditions of consent that were alive at the time that she made these tapes um, and the kinds of, um, kind of legacies of those conditions of consent in the present. Um, to whom do these recordings, these um, songs and conversations, um, to whom do they belong um, and to whom, who should have access to them? Um, and she has had some mixed responses from her interlocutors um, about um, whether it would even be possible to answer those questions conclusively um, and what she could or should do um, with this material. Um, and so I think, you know, she could have never foreseen um, at the time that she made these tapes um, some of these um, ethical, political, practical um, questions emerging um, in 2016. Um, and I think part of what 
that helps us think about now as people who do work um, with various communities in various places are the kinds of horizons um, that we cannot predict nor foresee, um, uh, but how we might think about um, the forging our practices of consent uh, building um, with the uncertainty of um, kind of future technological innovations in mind. Um, so I think it's really, uh, this kind of circles us back to the first question that you asked about ethics. I mean, the fact that both Lila and Beth have remained um, in contact um, to varying degrees with the people with whom they worked, have been working for decades, um, makes this ongoing conversation about consent possible. Um, and that's part of the ethical work in the digital age um, that I think is um, terribly important, right? Um, that uh, Lila can talk to, um, you know, the, the children and grandchildren of the people who are on these tapes um, about um, what is appropriate to circulate, whether they would like access to these things, um, rather than kind of be sitting with them years later um, outside of any kind of conversation about their legacy and their futures. Um, so that is one thing that is um, that these projects help us think through. And the second is this kind of amazingly fun and flexible um, and interesting Karabing uh, digital transmedia project that Beth has been engaged in um, uh, with this collaborative, um, this collective of people in the Northern Territory. Um, and I think, you know, there are, uh, there are so many different things that they've been trying to do. They've been making use of GIS technologies and GPS technologies, trying to think about um, alternative forms of mapping and archiving um, and their relationship to, um, you know, development strategies. Um, they've been making use of film and video. Um, so really kind of um, thinking both about alternative forms of archiving, but also about alternative modes of working and thinking together. Um, in the service of enduring in late liberalism, right? So how do we continue um, to uh, kind of make life worlds, um, or I, I think part of the question and part of the concern that they're putting on the table for us is how do we amplify um, the field? This one of the things that, uh, sorry, one of the things that Beth talks about at the end of geontologies is, um, what might happen if we amplify, she says, amplify um, the field of normative force for alternative analytics or something like that, right? So this isn't a direct quote. Um, but she's thinking about ways that these analytics of existence that are, you know, au courant among the folks with whom she's working, you know, what happens if they, um, if they come to some sort of, um, uh, if they circulate more broadly, what what would ha what might happen um, if we could use the tools at our disposal um, to kind of move these alternative analytics um, both within and beyond the communities in which they um, have been developed and reworked and um, and circulated. Um, and so there's a, a very exciting way in which um, you know Beth 
as kind of one member of the collective, the entire collective, is trying to think about um, all of the digital technologies at their disposal um, in the service of making um, a, a whole range of um, uh, kind of modes of survival and thriving possible. Um, and kind of, kind of what this means for our discipline or our work, our work as academics. I and mean, I think one thing to take very seriously is the kind of humility with which Beth approaches her um, her participation in this project and in others, right? She becomes an anthropologist, you know, kind of at the very beginning of her relationship to this community because the community asked her to. Um, they're in the middle of a land claim process and they need an anthropologist on their team alongside a lawyer. Um, and the community asks her to become a lawyer. And she says, you know, a lawyer is not quite what I imagined for myself. And they say, well, it's not a lawyer. Can you become an anthropologist? And so she does. Right? Um, and similarly with this Caribbean collective, um, for the non-Indigenous folks who are involved, they have to bring a certain amount of material resource to the table um, um, as part of their kind of commitment to working alongside and being clear about the relationships of power um, that are circulating um, in this group. And so I think there's a, th th there's a lesson there, too, for us about um, ways that the digital are not simply a question of, you know, can we make films with people or can we make websites with people and what does that look like? It's also about taking seriously um, of who we or uh, who the people are with whom we work and who we are um, in relationship to them um, in, a, in a thoughtful um, um, and critical way. I just want to thank you again for speaking with me this morning. And um, uh, I look forward to, to hearing more from you and also from Professors Pavanelli and Abu Lugod. So thank you again. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining me today to talk about Elizabeth Pavanelli's new book, Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism, and Lila Abulagod's book, Veiled Sentiments, Honor and Poetry in a Bedouin Society. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Columbia University's Dean of Humanities and School of Arts and Sciences, in addition to the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Society of Fellows. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Manan Ahmed's new book, A Book of Conquest, The Chachnama and Muslim Origins in South Asia. From Columbia University's Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.